George Tremlett, OBE, has been variously author, journalist, and bookseller, as well as being active in local government in London for many years. He served on the GLC as member for Twickenham, where he was particularly concerned with housing. George Tremlett's interests are notably wide-ranging. His publications include Living Cities, 17 biographies of rock musicians and groups, such names as David Bowie, John Lennon and The Who, and the official history of the Working Men's Club and Institute Union. A lifelong interest in Dylan Thomas and his work led George Tremlett to settle in Larne more than 30 years ago with his wife Jane. He runs an antiquarian bookshop specializing in Anglo-Welsh literature. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Uh, we're here in your bookshop, right across from Brown's Hotel, where Ketlin and Dylan Thomas spent a fair amount of their time. And you've written, or you wrote, back in the mid-80s, a biography of, called Caitlin, Life with Dylan Thomas, and it was somewhat controversial at the time of its release. Why? Well, it was controversial because Caitlin had refused to speak to any other biographer. And in fact, each previous biography had been based largely on interviews with people who didn't know the family, or whose family or whose relationships were, were superficial. And this was because, after Dylan Thomas died, Kathleen lost control of the estate. It was, in effect, seized. And what do you mean by seized? A trust was set up, which she assented to on the day of the funeral, during a week in which she tried to commit suicide twice. And within a month it was signed, sealed and delivered. And she found that she no longer had control of any aspect of his estate. Did she know what she was doing at the time? No. I think it's arguable that had the estate not been set up, um, she might have made some wrong decisions. Because at that time she was very unwell. The trauma of his death was particularly severe because he had left Narn for America. Um, intending to work with Stravinsky. Thomas was going to provide a libretto based on the end of the world. And Stravinsky had extended his house to accommodate Dylan and Kathleen. And by one way or another, Thomas failed to provide for her to go. And she was extremely upset. It was his fault then? To a degree. I, I mean, one has to be careful talking about things that are not documented. Yeah. Uh, nearly everything that I have on Kathleen is documented. Yeah, you mentioned that you uh, taped many, many hours that's right. of conversation. But in this particular respect, the degree to which they had a terrible row before he he left, it, it, it had never been explained at all until she spoke to me and had been a matter of dispute for 30 years. When she did explain to me, I thought she told the whole story, but I think subsequently that perhaps she didn't. Mm-hmm. And it was very painful. She didn't want him to go. And then if he was going to go, she wanted to go with him. And then when he went without her, she was very upset. And I think that's understandable. Now, Although he was going for pretty good intentions. He, he wanted to make some money so he could pay for children's education. Absolutely. And in fact, he was making a lot of money at that time. Roughly how much? Like, would he be, be paid f- in, how much for these lectures? In today's terms, roughly 120 to 150,000 pounds a year. But that didn't all come from lectures, it came from royalties. It came also from, he had patrons, he had at least eight patrons, mm. whose names have, have never been 
published. I'm not going to tell you who they are today. Uh, not but, even one of them? But I know who they are, and I've got that documented. Are you ever going to make that public? Possibly. I think there's a, a major book yet to be written on Thomas. The, there hasn't been a full-life biography of him yet. There's been quite a number, though, right? Not of substance. Okay. Not of substance. The book that I did with Kathleen was specifically and solely related to the marriage. It wasn't a discussion of his work or the inspiration of his work. And I think time has to elapse before you can try to do that. Partly because because of the, the way she lost control of the estate, other people claimed to have written his work and things like that. And that's all got to settle down. That all takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, after 400 years, there are still fools who believe Bacon wrote Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. More than ever right now. That's geez. right. Yeah. And in the last seven, last 40 years, there have been fools who thought Dylan Thomas didn't write his own work. Mm. But all of, that can, all of that will settle down, I think, to, during the centenary year. During, which is coming up this, yes. uh, this year. And why do you think that? Do you think there's just going to be more, more and more people talking about or writing about him, or...? I'm fairly dry-eyed about the centenary year. I, I think it's a great tourist occasion, and the tourist trade is going at it hammer and tongs. And they, they really are, yeah. That's why and, I'm here. And the Welsh Assembly, or the Welsh Government, have allotted £700,000 for the budget, and a lot of nonsense will, will be enjoyed by all, you know? What do you mean by that? Well, there's going to be pony rides through West Wales, and they're going to be escorted tours, and there are going to be kayaks across the across the yeah. River Taff. And, but uh, they'll, I mean, there's there's going to be a, a lot more people reading his poetry. I hope so. As a result, that's one good so. thing. Well, that will be the effect of the, of the promotion. I think it will be a very good, a very wrong time to bring out an intelligent book. <laughs> but that's a, mm. that's another issue. Altogether. What do you mean by intelligent? You mean truthful or more um, accurate? Or all, all biography should be truthful. Mm. It needs to be balanced. And the ones that have been written so far? There's been a lack of balance. Most of them have ex- excluded Kathleen. Most of them have excluded her family. They've excluded what she brought to the marriage. And what did she bring to the marriage? What she brought to the marriage was um, history in art and in Irishness and Irish literature, although she herself was born in London, her father was Francis McNamara, who was a fairly minor Irish poet, but who was an associate of W.B. Yeats and all that generation around, around the Abbey Theatre, mm. and was probably the closest friend that Augustus John ever had. And they were intimate friends for 30, 40 years. Mm. A very, very close, like brothers, in fact. And when Kathleen's mother and father separated and her mother began a lesbian relationship with a, a woman called Nora Summers, Augustus John, in effect, became, as her sister Nicolette described it, a father. And Nicolette's book about the relationship was two flamboyant fathers. So the the McNamara's, that's Katie McNamara, Bridget McNamara, Nicolette McNamara, and their brother John, they all had, in effect, two fathers. And one was Augustus, the other was Francis. But the, uh, Augustus was, was incestuous father. Augustus, he was an incestuous father, but it, in a part, what made it so unusual was that all the family's friends were connected with the arts. 
in art in particular, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with the Slade, Slade School. Kathleen's sister Nicolette was an artist. Both her husbands were artists. Her mother's lover was an artist. Augustus John had artists in and out of the house all the time and was rooted in Fitzrovia in London, which was the centre where the artists of the day, you know, Ep Epstein, Lucien Freud, Bacon and all the rest of them, they were all centred around that time. They were all sort of people whom Thomas knew. Because of Kathleen? Because, well, Kathleen herself, before, before meeting Thomas, had been living in Paris with an artist called Lars Segal, who was a Lithuanian Jew, whose work was very much about the, about the Jewish predicament, not just in the 30s, but historically. And he was declared a degenerate artist. By the Nazis. By the Nazis, yeah. by, by Hitler and Goering. Just like Dix was. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And he fled. He'd become partly Brazilian by choice. He eventually became natu naturalised. Brazilian. He fled to Brazil and Kathleen fled to London. And she, she must have been pretty young at that age. She was um, late teens. No, in late teens she'd be a bit older than that. A bit older, okay. Yeah, she was born in 1913. Okay. And this happened about 1935-6. Just in the build-up before the war when the, um, when the pressure was being felt by the artist. And she arrived in London uh, with a a whole bundle of Lars Segal's paintings under her, her arms, and she lived on selling those for a while. And then Augustus John introduced her to Thomas. Yeah, what was that all about? First of all, uh, Augustus John, did, did he, would you say he, he didn't rape her? He, he raped her, yes. He but, did rape her. But she wasn't particularly upset by it. Uh, she sort he sort of forced himself on her. He forced himself on her. And she didn't, she, I guess he thought, she, well, she didn't well, complain... He, he was doing her portrait at the time. Yeah, no, I guess he slept with pretty well everyone. He, he did. Of, yeah. And she understood perfectly well that it went, that it went with the job. You know? yeah, yeah. That if you that if he was painting your portrait, well, he had you. you know? <laughs> right. And she said he was like a hairy old goat. She, she, she accepted that yeah. and didn't stop her going back the next day and sitting again. Yeah. And she sat with him again till he finished the portrait, which was exhibited at the Royal Academy. It was a significant portrait. And he, I suppose the reason she was going back was because she knew that he was a significant artist. And he, this was, was he was part of the family yeah. because he, he had, in effect, been her de facto father. Not the greatest judgment, I guess. Or he just had this bohemian well, sense that he could sleep with whoever he wanted well, to. Well, bohemians are bohemians, and yeah. you know, they have their own values. And I think, I think those were among the values that Dylan acquired from Catelyn. A bohemian attitude to life, but more importantly than that, I think the really big thing he, he acquired from Catelyn is because she had this background and she'd been familiar with the prerogatives of artists for the whole of her life. Uh, but she was a very, very sexual, sensual... A very beautiful woman. Beautiful. Very beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and a dancer mm. and who'd been in London, tour, London chorus lines. You know? Yeah. And on the day that they met, Augustus, it was in the wheat sheaf in Fitzrovia, uh, Augustus introduced Dylan to her. Is, the, is that pub still around, Yes, by the way? Uh, and it hasn't changed an awful lot. Oh, good. Okay. You can actually walk into it, and it's got a lovely feeling to it. Right. Very, very nice pub. Okay. And 
it always used to be used by the postman in those days, so it had a nice balance of sort of... Um, it was a classless pub. Okay, you know? right. A lot of the writers used to, used to meet there, and the artists as well. Mm-hmm. Thomas used to pop in there with the other, meeting the other writers and the artists, but he was no slouch at getting about, you know. Well, no, that's the thing that's extraordinary about yeah. him. Like, he was so young when his first book of poetry came out, and it seemed like he got to know everyone. So he must have been very sociable, and I guess he was a good letter writer. He was here, there, and everywhere. Right. He would have made a very good salesman. He kept in touch with everyone. He wrote far too many letters. I mean, um, instead of what writing poetry? No, many of his many of his letters were quite unnecessary, really. And he he what do you mean? They just he wasn't disciplined enough in letters. Extremely difficult disciplined in his poetry. He was a very fast writer in in letters, short stories, things like that. But in poetry, he was extremely slow. It's my view that because of the influence of Catelyn, after he met her, every poem became complete in itself, like a painting. And he acquired the artist's ethic of making every work complete in itself. I think this largely derived from Henry Tonks, who was the head of the Slade, and himself a major artist. And Tonks inspired that whole generation. And one of his, one of his students was Isaac Rosenberg, who became one of the great poets of the First World War. And I think you see in Isaac Rosenberg, who only became known in the early to mid-thirties. He was an unknown poet until then, and, and was dead. I think you see in Isaac Rosenberg the first poet to be influenced by Tonks. And that was who, having been one of his students. And in Thomas, I think you see the influence of Tonks, having come into that climate where... The, Everyone he knew, and nearly everyone he knew, had been taught, you know, make each work complete in itself. Yeah, can you give, can you illustrate that for us? In what way? Well, how would his poetry have changed as a result of this? I think... And and also, when you mean a complete work of art in itself, can can you just explain that a bit more? Yes, of course. In the years as he was in Swansea... He wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. He, he produced well over 200 poems. Yeah, for between the ages of like yeah. 16 and 20 or thereabouts. But right? most of them are junk. Oh. They don't stand up. They haven't been finished. About four really great poems come out of Swansea. After he left Swansea and after he met Catelyn, the discipline that you can see in the four great poems that come from Swansea is, is suddenly in everything he does. And... She used to say to him, keep it simple, keep it simple. Basic odd things. Couldn't stand sentimentality. She couldn't. She couldn't. Very firm on punctuation, commas, and you know where you should have a comma or semicolon. And she, and she was with me. I could see it. The other thing, she had a facility with words, which I suppose came from the family background. So all this thing like Bible black and things like that, she rolled her vowels and her nouns together and her adjectives. As she, so she rolled them together in everyday conversation. And if you heard her speak, as I did for eight years, and specifically for those 50 recording hours, if you heard her speak, you heard the nouns and the vowels and the adjectives rolling together in speech. Very attractive. And you hear it in Thomas. You did not hear it prior to her arriving, but you did afterwards. No, I th- what I heard, I, I wasn't aware of it until 
They went out to Sicily in 1985, and they stayed with her for almost a month. But you don't hear you you don't hear it in Dylan's poetry oh, before yes, you do. he no, met her, and you do after. Yes, and okay. you do after, and you do in Under Milk Wood. Okay, sorry, it's interesting you should say that because I think a, a lot of the, the sexual letters that Joyce wrote to his to Nora. Mm. And he invited her to be as open as possible. Mm. He, I, I believe, got quite a bit of material from that. When I went out to stay with her, I'd, I'd known her for about four years before we started working together. It took me four years to persuade her to work on this book. You'd met her locally here? I met her in London. And she came to London periodically, but did not come down to Wales. What year was that, then? I first met her in 1982. Okay. How did you meet her? I met her in London, her, her daughter. She was with her daughter, and um, I'd asked her daughter to introduce me, and, and she did. We hoped she'd come over for the unveiling of the plaque in Westminster Abbey, but she wouldn't come. But she came in over sh shortly afterwards, partly to see the plaque. Is that the one that Jimmy Carter insisted on? Well, Jimmy Carter had a small part in it. Okay, depends who you talk to, I guess. I mean, if you're interested, I can tell you exactly what happened. The Dean of Westminster told our Henri that he would very much like to see a plaque to Dylan Thomas in Westminster Abbey. Oh, you see, I, the word I got was that Jimmy Carter showed up and said, why isn't there a statue no, I, or a I'm, monument? I'm going, I'm going back a, a year before that. And okay. and the dean said that under the conventions that they have, they had to raise a £3,000 to fund the plaque and its maintenance. That had to be a fund. And I only said, how can you, said to me, how can we raise a £3,000? And I said, well, I thought the nice thing to do would be to have a concert so that everyone who went could feel that they'd taken part in it. And I was then on the Greater London Council, and I asked my colleagues if we could have the festival hall for the night free to have a concert. And they said yes. And I then said to Ironry, what do we do next? Um, because none of us knew how to organise a concert. So I wrote to Lord Harleck, who was then chairman of HTV, and asked him whether HTV would like to help us organise this concert. HTV is... It was then the Broadcasting Company for Wales, and Lord Harlech was an intimate friend of the Kennedy family, as, as well as being a British aristocrat. He'd been the ambassador in Washington. Okay. And um, at about that time, when this was just starting to take shape, Carter arrived in London okay. and expressed the opinion that it wouldn't be nice if this plaque was in Westminster Abbey. And that gave it a little bit of a kick, because... What had until that time taken quite a while to get off the ground. Oh, you see, the way I'd heard it was yeah. that he he came in and he said, "Why isn't there a plaque yes, to Dylan he here?" And the response was, "Well, we don't uh, allow those kind of people no, no, in no, no, here." No. And he said, "Well, look, this one was no, a no. drunkard. This one was no, a no, no, no. no that's uh, not true." Uh, no, okay. what, what's true is the Dean of Westminster wanted a plaque. He did. Okay. And he told Ironry that he wanted a plaque. I see. Okay. And while we were trying to get it off the ground, in came Carter and said, why isn't the plaque? And everyone said, oh, yes, well, we must have one. <laughs> yeah. And Lord Halleck uh, said, look, we don't want a concert at the Festival Hall. It's a bit too vast. 
let's have one at the Duke of York's Theatre instead. Okay. And ironically, and I were on the committee that organised it with um, Hugh Weldon and various people connected with Thomas, including John Allman Thomas and Winfred Vaughan Thomas. Okay. And so, so sorry. So you you met Kitlin through her daughter then. Yes. And then spent some time suggesting that it would be valuable to have her side of the story told. Or? The reason, the reason for that was that I knew her side of the story hadn't been told. Right. And I knew that the family's friends hadn't spoken. The family's friends had all stayed loyal to Kathleen until she spoke. They wouldn't speak. So you had a um, tranche of biographies that were only based on third-party information. You had no direct access to anything of importance. And this is apparent in the biographies. Now, what, which ones are those? There's Ferris. Fitzgibbon. Okay. The best of the lot, funny enough, was written uh, by a chap called Reed, who was John Markham Brunin's lover, Bill Reed. They had a lifelong partnership. Yeah. And Bill Reed accompanied um, Brunin to Lyon, met Dylan and Kathleen in Lyon, was very observant and wrote a very good perceptive biography that was published um, shortly after Dylan died, in the days of Dylan Thomas, I think it was called. And um, that was very good. And why was it good? Because he had per he had a personal insight. He had, he had met Thomas. He'd met him, he'd gotten to know Traveled him a bit. I mean, he'd seen him in action in the States, he'd seen him in his own home here, and because he didn't have a bias. Okay, so who did have a bias and why did they have bias? Fitzgibbon unwittingly had a bias because he had known Thomas fairly briefly and he had somehow he hadn't got down deep into Thomas's character when he did know him. Mm. So he was willing to accept other people's words for things of which he had no knowledge. Mm. without going to source. He was convinced, for instance, Thomas was a socialist. Fitzgibbon was convinced he wasn't a socialist. And on something as basic as that, which is pretty fundamental, uh, if you don't get that right, there's a lot of other things you don't get right. He didn't know very much about Thomas's range of friendships. He didn't know much about his knowledge of, uh, what I we call, other races and... Um, peoples of other sexuality. It, Thomas had a very wide friend, friendships mm. among the dancers and singers and musicians and artists, mm. and it crossed every racial boundary. Mm. And many of them were gay. Uh, it was, was Thomas bisexual, you think, or not? Possibly. When Kathleen discussed it with me, she said she knew that Brynion had been after him, and her, but she didn't think he'd ever been buggered. And she discussed her sex life with me very, very deeply. Mm. The first day I went over there, the, the first day, the very first morning after we started tape recording, she said, before we start, she said, I want to say two things. Firstly, I want you to know I never had an orgasm. With Dylan. him or anyone else? With him. Just him. Until That's pretty abrupt. Until <laughs> Dylan died, she had never had an orgasm. With him or with anyone? With anyone. She didn't know that women could have orgasms. Oh, my goodness. And she died, when she died, when Dylan died, she was 40. Okay. Well, 39, 11 months to be precise. Did you make love to her? No. Okay. Absolutely not. 
She talked very openly about her sex life. Why? Having, having it pun. Why, I wonder. Because she told me that she wanted only the truth to be published. We kept our relationship very, very formal, but it was very, but it was a very comfortable relationship. And Sorry, she, she, it was a very comfortable, comfortable relationship because she was totally truthful. I didn't. I never had to doubt anything she said. Oh, with you? Yes. Yes, I see. I never had to doubt anything she said mm. because she was very exact in her language. Yeah, it's funny. I heard a, an interview with her uh, just this morning, and she talks about him not being sort of tall, dark, and handsome, and that she probably wouldn't have fallen for him if he hadn't been a, a really renowned poet. What attracted her to him was, as she put it, he had the gift. And being Irish, although it, I mean, her, her family had been major landowners in County Clare, and um, had a very large estate there. And being of Irish ex- extraction, albeit Irish Protestant extraction, she had an awareness of language, and, uh, which I think the English don't have in the same way as the Irish. The, the gift matters a lot to her. Yeah. He had the gift. But, I mean, I think they, after they met in the, the wheat chief, mm. they went to a hotel for a whole week. That's and right. That's right. screwed each other silly, right? That's right. So that so it really was more than... But... It was a very... It was a physical... Good... Sounds like it was a pretty good physical... Well, I, I said to her, you know... I said, well, okay, describe it. Right. Well, she said he, she said when he went to take his clothes off, he said he hadn't washed them for weeks and they were standing up as he stepped out of oh, the <laughs> And she said he needed a bath, first of all. <laughs> and I said, did he seem sexually experienced? She said, no. Mm-hmm. I said, did you think he was a virgin? She said, probably. She, yeah. said, I had to, she said, I had to do everything. And what? how old was he at that point? Twenty-four. And she was twenty. Oh, hang on. He was born fourteen in nineteen thirteen, and they met in thirty six. So it will be twenty three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, there's a, a strangeness in the Welsh character. There's young Welsh men like to boast about their beer, their drinking capacity, and their women. Well, that's not specific to Wales, but, but it happens a lot in Wales. Yeah, they they'll brag about the number that's of women right. they've slept that's with right. and the amount of drink they've that's had. Right. Yeah, and in Thomas's case, the funny thing is, uh, the various women who say they're in love with Dylan Thomas, but there's no evidence that he was ever in love with them. Yeah, there are no illegitimate babies. There are no, uh, there be no sort of sightings in divorce suits or anything of that kind. Well, you know, it's famous, famously, this idea that he said I had, you know, eighteen whiskies. It could just be bravado. It's or, not true. Yeah, his friend Ruthven Todd whom he'd known in London, who was by then settled in New York, mm. while he was in the coma, because obviously this was an important factor, Ruthven Todd retraced his steps for that night and found that he'd had somewhere between four and six whiskies. Well, no one in the bar saw, and the white no, horse saw no. him drinking that no, much. It didn't happen. So unless he, he went home and drank them all no, on his it didn't own. Happen. Yeah. A lot of Brinning's book, which of course is the, is the source for a lot of the um, confusion... A lot of Brinning's book is Brinning's intimate descriptions of things that happened when he wasn't there. And if you go through Brinning's book, which I have, and, and just go through to- Thomas's letters, which, which date it and tell you where he was and what dates and what he was doing, you'll see that they that don't match. They don't yeah. match. Well, so why is he doing this then, do you think? I think, I think it was all bound up in his own sexuality as well. 
Kathleen was furious with him. I mean, she, as they say, she thought she was, she thought he'd been trying to seduce Dylan. I don't believe that, but that's what she thought. And You're jealous of him. Yes. Okay, so I mean, it sounds to me like Bryn was trying to tell the, tr- trying to get things accurate. He, he wasn't was, trying to be misleading. Well, I'd be worried. I'd worried for years about this because, th- bearing in mind, I've had an interest in Thomas for sixty years. Yeah. Since I was fourteen. And I've been trying to rationalise this. Did, sorry, did, since you were 14, was he still alive? He was, what I, year was that then? Well, I was 14 in 1953. The fact that he died attracted your interest, I guess. It attracted the interest of nearly every other young man of my age in Britain at that time. It's almost Byronic, isn't it, his, well, his appeal? The appeal, you see, was because it was a generation brought up on radio. And he was really he, strong in radio. He was a big dog. Well, you ra- call him the first rock star. Yes, I do. Because of his popularity through through radio, I guess. Well, you see, the sort of things he did, I mean, for instance, he read W.H. Davies' autobiography of a super tramp on radio for, for the BBC, and it was repeated several times. Mm. I, I can't remember how many weeks it ran for. It was about 12, I think. Mm. I used to wait for it and listen to it, because, you know, this was his voice capturing what were then the sort of romantic adventures of a, of a super tramp. And he had that ability to... So obviously, did it mesmerise you, or is it like... No, it, it didn't, but it, 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 it hooked my interest. I had an English teacher who had urged me to listen to him, and, um, and I followed his advice, and I did. It's only on occasions like this I talk about him. Um, and it happened to be last night as well, which is strange. Mm. I've given, I think, two talks about Thomas in about 10 or 15 years. But you, you would, like, you, did you fall in love with... The, no, the, no, not, no, not, no. I don't mean, you know, physically necessarily, no. but just in love with his voice no, or in no, love no, with... No, it's not even that. There's much of his work I don't like. No, I think there are about 20 major poems there that will last as long as the English language. I agree. There's not... Yeah. Uh, if, even, if you can, if, even if you can write three or four, yeah. you're doing pretty well, aren't you? But he did about 20, I think. Right. But, uh, under Milkwood as well. So, your fascination with him, why? Language. Use of language. The way that he's expressed what you want the, you, to yes, express? Yes, The use of language. The way in which he uses language to express a very complex thought in my craft of cell and art is quite complex well it's quite sound simple and again you you suggest that uh, Ketlin may have been responsible for him keeping it as simple as he without can. without any doubt in searching for this simplicity which i mean all great art has a simplicity van gogh has a simplicity mm. modigliani has simplicity Picasso has simplicity, but to be able to express complexity with simplicity is one of the great purposes of art. And in fact, I think that's how Einstein uh, defines art as well. I didn't know that. Very much. If you're able to express a really complicated idea in simple terms, it it takes a genius to do that. Some of Thomas's first lines sound so simple. Do not go gentle into that good night. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It was my 30th year to heaven. Wow. (laughs) That is great language. And you could understand every syllable. Well, even the use of Bible black. It's got so much packed into those two words. That's right. So so my interest is in the power of language. 
My interest in him and in Catelyn is because I genuinely believe there's been no one else in Shakespeare who has had the power to express complexity. Sadly, he didn't produce the plays as he was going on to write, but he would have written them. He didn't, he, he didn't do the London stage play as he was about to do. He didn't do the libretto for Stravinsky. He didn't do the film adaptation of Ulysses, all of which were... On the, on the agenda. They yeah, are on the... all of which were sort of in the pipeline. My interest is that, I think uniquely, one can, by studying his life, understand the situations that gave way to his work. You can't... You can't it'd be folly to try to, <laughs> try to analyse the poems. And I've refused to do so over the years, for much the yeah. same reason that D.H. Lawrence said you could never criticise a Modigliani. Yeah. Never, ever tried to analyse perfection. And Thomas achieved perfection in the same way that Modigliani and Picasso achieved perfection. And I think the, the, the job of the biographer, in my particular case, in relation to Thomas, is to understand how the man was able to reach the position where he could try to do this and what were the accomplishments or the skills or what was the, ex the experiences that enabled him to have the right frame of mind to do that. Mm. But you don't analyse line by line because that's, that's peculiar to his craft. First of all, these are works of art, complete works of art, that's as you right. say. That's so right. how can you... And incidentally, unlike T.S. Eliot, and unlike Auden, unlike Stephen Spender, and unlike Wordsworth, and unlike Longfellow, and unlike Mark Twain, there is, is in Thomas a precision. He's working in eight lines, or he's working in ten lines, or mm. he's doing a sonnet, or he's doing, as in Alderweiss by, uh, by Owlite, he's mm. doing ten sonnets. I find that the most impenetrable of all, because the, the story has it is that he was describing the history of Christianity in ten sonnets. <laughs> you would need to have a very obtuse understanding of Christianity to be able to find that, 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 that parallel. Well, I mean, obviously people are going to argue with you to say that the list of poets you've, you've named are mm. in his class, if you will, mm. but your argument is that he's with Shakespeare above everyone else. Yes, and, and Burns. Burns and Shakespeare. And you're saying that... It's because of the How precision. do you defend that, then? Because, what do you mean? Well, it, it's clearly your opinion. Yes. And you base that opinion on the language that appeals to you. Not that appeals to me, the, the language with which he has been able to communicate the idea to the world. What he does for me is just for me. I mean, it, that doesn't matter as much in itself. Let, let me show you something. Which I, I once did a programme called Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And that was a TV programme that I sort of, in effect, narrated. And at that time, the producer had by accident stumbled upon the fact that Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night had become a phrase that resonated around the world. It is truly a great poem, there's no doubt, and in my mind either, filled with emotion and memorability. Well, it's about his father's death. Yes. Or the way he's dying. Yes. There are 5,830,000 references to that, do not go gentle to that good night mm. on Google. Right. And doesn't that tell you something? 
it tells you the the universality of right. the sentiment or the yeah. way that it's been that's where i compare him with shakespeare not that he had the same level of accomplishment because he didn't he didn't live long enough he didn't broaden enough he didn't produce the plays that he might have done he only really did the one i think under milkwood was a masterpiece we we are in the place yes. that that play is based upon. And various people who were in the play, named in the play, were, were sort of living all around him and going to use the bar of the Browns Hotel with him. And yeah. he would make notes of the way they speak and things like that. Yeah. He was always putting notes in his pockets as he heard a phrase. It's the best way to get... It's, it's, it's wonderful. When I came here and I found that several of them were, were still alive, I kept it very much to myself and didn't tell us all. All their lives was made been made misery. I suppose, you right? Know, they'd have had journalists on their step all the time. One of them died earlier this year, Douglas Williams. Douglas was da- the dancing Williams who lost his step in Nantucket. And every time he got up to fight Douglas, he, he was like this, like a southpaw. And he'd hop in, in the pub? Yes, anywhere. He would, yeah. he would happily pick fights. So he was dancing Williams, and he was a sailor. He travelled the world, you know? He'd been a ship's captain. So the book that you wrote with Ketlin, why was it controversial at the time? 86, 87? 86, yes. It was serialised in the Sunday Times in this country. It was serialised in Canada, serialised in Australia. Had a fairly good distribution worldwide in hardback and in paperback. And it was controversial because Ketlin was so unhibited about her sexual life and about their drinking. Their drinking, as you would know if you stayed in Lyon, their drinking fell into a larn pattern rather than an alcoholic pattern. Well, maybe not just larn. I mean, mm. my experience last night in Swansea is that I was just kind of flabbergasted at how many of the people in the pub and outside the pub were smashed out but of their heads. But that's not larn. That's not larn. Here in larn has been a tradition of the pubs being places where you talk and you meet your friends in the pub and you talk. Mm. And you go home, you may go home for your supper and um, have some supper. Mm. And later you may go, go back and have another one. Yeah. It's like a communal living room. Yes, yes, yeah. very much. The first week I was in Lyon, which is in 1977, I popped into a pub down the road that has since closed called Green Dragon. I was sitting there having a beer. My wife was across the road getting a child ready for bed. Yeah. And um, I heard two people behind me discussing the structure of the Welsh short story. I don't know, this is this. Unusual, yeah. This is odd, you know. Yeah. And I listened to this, and after they'd gone, I said to the landlady, who are those those two guys, is he? Oh, they said they were were two of the road sweepers. You're kidding. Yeah. So again, though, that doesn't jive with my experience in Swansea. It wouldn't. Swansea's a pit. (laughs) Yeah, but... So Thomas got away from Swansea when he was 24. True enough. It's the pits. That's extraordinary, though, isn't it? But you must like that. Why is that? It always has been. I mean, this afternoon, people are talking. I was over the road having a drink, and one of them was a retired assistant headmaster. The other one was retired deputy head of the local police. Another guy was a major in the army, and a daughter was there. Another chap was a farmer. And you don't stop to think about it. You just you just meet people. You chat, you chat, and you talk, and uh, you reminisce, and you tell stories, and you try to amuse each other. It's yeah. very quiet. 
never ever on Friday nights you sometimes see hen parties coming here from outside and they go to the mariners they wouldn't go to the browns it's a bit tribal what do you mean if, if, if an outsider would have trouble no no how, an outsider would have no trouble at all if unless he came in and tried to take over <laughs> right right so it was controversial then for, for its its sexuality sexuality like the, it seems to me there's a real effort to rehabilitate Dylan's there's a lot of damage done early on that's that's stuck about him being that was drunk by Brinning. right the damage was done by Brinning. And, um, but, what, but, and again, it was because the, the, his famous quote, I guess, that's one thing. One, thing's, one of them. His description of him basically is being debauched. Right, yeah. He's always, uh, he's yeah. never on time and he's always drunk. He only missed one occasion in his, in his whole of his American tours. And he was nearly always dead on time. Very yeah. punctual. Yeah. Always got his day's work done. Hmm. Once his day's work was done, he tended to drink. He couldn't handle bourbon whiskey, that's, uh, that's for sure. And when he was in this country, he didn't drink bourbon whiskey, he, he drank beer. Yeah. And he drank beer quite, he drank in half pints. Yeah. And he was quite moderate, but he had a very weak liver. Even uh, though his liver was fine in the autopsy. Uh, it was a bit puffy. When they laid him out on the slab, the autopsy slab, they were surprised how young he looked. The 39, right? Yeah. I wrote another book with an American brain surgeon called James Nashalt on, on the death of Dylan Thomas. And Jim Nashalt traced all the doctors and nurses who'd attended to him. That was how we established that Brinian's account was untrue. The account that he drank so much. All of that, yes. Yeah. And they were trying to protect the doctor who gave him the fatal doses of morphine. That's right, but again, if the if the doctor was told by the patient, I've I've had all of this, and there's no real reason for the doctor to believe that this was not true, you it's hard to hold him responsible for well, for, for delivering the whatever three, he thought was three times a normal dose. So so why did he do that? And he'd already one? been dosing him with cortisone for the last three months without testing him. So why was he doing this? Was he just completely irresponsible? I'm told that he was, they say, a pill doctor from Northside. <laughs> that's what I, that's the phrase I hear. In other words, in other words, just prescribe anything to get him better. And, and he he was a pill doctor, and he didn't right. he didn't do what in my view he should have done. He didn't test his blood and right. urine and all those things. This, what the things that would normally be done? They weren't done. They weren't done. So it, was, it really was malpractice then. It was negligence. They were very anxious to protect him. They being? Liz Rytel, who was Brinian's assistant. She was having an affair with Thomas, was she? That's not well documented. The only person that says that is her. That's right. There's no corroborative evidence. And she was, at that time, between men anyway. She was married four, four times. Thomas was around. Thomas had what... Kathleen described as bed and breakfast women. If somebody put him up for the night and saved the cost of going to a hotel or whatever, so what? He'd, he'd do it. There was nothing in it. It was something he'd done for years. She was aware of it. She didn't like it, but she put up with it. How many lovers do you think he had then? I wouldn't call them lovers. Or, it, or just sexual... Is a, a one-night stand a lover? I no, it's not a lover, no. no. Quite. How he many had, people did he fuck then? I wonder. Um... 
Before Catelyn, not a lot, I think. No. But uh, after? Because of her description. Yeah. After, not a great deal. Not a great 15? deal. Fifteen? No. Nowhere near. Hmm. But there were, there were occasional one-night stands. That, that and what about, what about her? She was a little more ready than he was. But that that is to some extent because, A, she'd had... She lived with Lars, Lars Segal before she met him. She'd grown up in the Auguste Jean Ménage. What uh, about after the, uh, the after getting she, married? After she went wild. After, after he died. No, but what about after they got married, while they were married? Most of the time, pretty stable. Sometimes a bit doubtful. So, half but a dozen? N- or Nothing intense. No relationships as such. Right, but just get it off and... Casual. With and you know, bear in mind that's rock and roll too, and that's artists too, and that, that's true enough. Too. Yeah. yeah, and if they, if they both that, sort of accepted that, or more, and it didn't trouble her. No, it didn't trouble her. It probably troubled him, though, didn't it? Ivy Williams once said to him that Kathleen had been having an affair, and he looked down his nose. He said she would never do anything like that. <laughs> Even if she would, he he would not, wouldn't acknowledge. He wouldn't give anyone else the satisfaction. They looked after each other. They did care for each other, oh, despite very, very being much. being at each other's throats. Very, very much. So it was one of these sort of always fighting, but in love. Very much. She she never took her out of bed. Once they got into bed, it was all over. He needed to be cuddled more than he needed sex. Cuddled? Cuddled like a child. And she provided that. As his mother and mother did. Yeah. So here we are in 2014. What do you think needs to be said that hasn't been said yet already? I would like people just to love the word. I mean, that was what he said, love the words. So you'd like to see more people just try reading them? Oh, yes. So you're dissatisfied with the, the existing biographies? Yes, I think lack depth. Well, the, the most recent one is... It's, uh, nice rec- it. yeah. Yeah, it was recommended to, to, to me. I've, I've only read the first few chapters, but... Who was recommended by? A couple people, actually. Yeah, yeah. it was all cobbled together. He, he, he paraphrased a lot of my stuff mm. without giving credit. And he paraphrased a lot of other people. It didn't There was very little original research in there. So are you uh, planning on writing that biography or not? I don't know. I don't think it should be published before he goes out of copyright. And that's t- ten years' time, because I think a real biography, when it comes, has to be uninhibited by copyright. Uninhibited by copyright? What does that mean? What it means is that they... Those who control copyright, in his case, haven't necessarily preserved the truth. But copyright's just basically uh, p- publishers... No, it's any, the copyright any, in his letters and in his writings. Uh, a lot of his writing, non-poetic writing, Adventures in the Skin Trade, is primarily autobiographical. Portrait of the Artist's Young Dog, all those short stories are autobiographical. And you can actually relate the stories to specific instances in in his life and into the development of his character. I still don't understand the the copyright uh, angle. Because they have prevented various things being done and said which infringe their control of copyright. And it wasn't Catelyn's control of copyright, it was their control of copyright. Their meaning the estate? Yes. They've controlled the release of letters and such or they've suppressed letters that don't that don't fit their concept i see so the, the when that ends 
then then there'll be a, a free discussion. A, a free discussion because of why you'll be able to you'll be able to publish letters. You won't have that, to ask anyone's permission to to publish the letters yes, that yes. exist uh, in yes. uh, which libraries, by the way, Buffalo and Texas. Or yes, but they've mostly been transcribed now. You, there's no need to go to Buffalo to no no to find letters that are already in print. There are letters that have not been published that could be. Does the copyright restrict people from actually reading them? No, no. Just the publishing of them. I have never, ever, not once, sought permission from the estate. I w and I would not do so. To read? To quote from. I haven't sought their consent on anything. I've published a full account of their, what I would call, perfidy. I've put that in writing. Not to, I don't want to drag it on too much, but what, what is their perfidy? In taking control of his estate and choosing his biographers and allowing his widow no involvement in that process. And taking advantage of a woman that... Taking that, advantage that, of her. In that difficult period. For, for over 30 years. The, the, first, the first thing they did was they went door to door in Larne. They paid off all Thomas's debts, which was fine. They told all the tradesmen that she was to be given no credit because she now had an allowance of £8 a week. Yeah, how paternalistic. That's More she, than that. They had the money in the estate for her to buy the boathouse when it was offered to her for £2,500. They wouldn't give her the money to buy the estate. Instead, uh, they the, bought the it themselves. Yes, yeah. they bought it themselves and used it as a private holiday home. For? Themselves. What about her? Whatever she going to be? She left the country because of Brinin. Oh, that's right. She went to... Um, she, she left the country before Brinin was published. Because she felt that... She didn't want to be here when Brinin was published. Right, because it was... It made her look so bad. And that's why she stayed away for over 30 years. Having studied it all, and I formed the view that she was right. Mm. I still believe that she was right. I've seen all her legal documents, all her medical documents. In fact, I've got copies of them. All her medical papers, all her legal papers, all her accounts and things like that. All of those I have. And um, I think she was traduced. My sympathies are with her. And so, as you say, everything that's really come out has avoided criticism of the estate. Yes. And that's what needs to be examined. That's what Because we, it sounds almost that's criminal. What, that, yes, well, they... For nearly 40 years, she knew that if she stepped out of line, the income from Dylan's estate would be used to sue her. So it's blackmail, in a she way. She knew that. If she ever did or said anything they disliked, they cut off her income, and she was left without income in in Rome. Where did the income, was it spent, or did it just build up, or what? At one time it built up, and I helped her take the legal action that ensured she got the money. That time was eighty thousand pounds, and that was nineteen eighty-eight. She needed the money to have a medical operation. They knew that she was ill, and they were hoping she would die. And I know that. I can't tell you for these purposes how I know that. But I know that. Yeah. And I have it annotated. They thought she would die, so they weren't selling her the money. Without the money, she couldn't have the operation. And the operation was to relieve the pressure on the vertebrae, the top of the spine, that had disintegrated through her years of alcoholism. She had been a non-alcoholic since 1976, and in fact didn't touch alcohol at all until she died. When did she die? 1994. So the last 18 years of her life were in total sobriety. But they still continued to plead that she was alcoholic, that she was demented, that she was suffering from this. None of which was true, and I got it in writing. 
And um, I think the treatment was awful. And that as a result of that, because they were briefing the biographers, a totally false perception arose of her. She was one of the great literary wives, and she didn't have that due. And I can see why that would, that would motivate you. Yes, that's what, that is what motivates me. Justice, really. Yes, she, she deserved justice. And um, she was totally loyal to him in personal terms. But neither she nor he equated sexuality with fidelity. Mm-hmm. They were different concepts. Well, bohemian, who said. Yes, yes. It didn't matter. And you have to accept people by their own evaluation in those things. Yes. Yeah. You, you can't moralise about the way people make their choices. What's, go- what's happening with the money now? Is it going to... It goes into the estate. Uh, Kathleen, of course, d- has, has died. Her three children have died. Um, Hannah is... Hannah is a grandchild, who's the daughter of Avonwy. Hannah is now, in effect, keeping the flame alive. Does that mean that she gets the money? Well, how they're dispersing it, I'm not, I, I don't know, because I, although I'm, I have all the documents up to the time Kathleen died... Yeah. I don't have the documents after she died, but there have been. There was a high court case over it because Kathleen wanted to leave part of her estate to her Italian son, and the other children wouldn't bear it. So she left everything she possessed to her Italian son, excluded her children. Quite Jesus, honest. Oh, it's so messy, isn't it? And I've got and I, and I have a copy of the will, um, a photocopy of the will. At one stage, you had a will appointed me her executor, but I, I wouldn't. I advised her not to do that, and I advised I gave her the legal advice. And she also asked me to help arrange for her to be buried with Dylan, and I helped with those arrangements too. Which she is. Which she is in this town. In this town, and she couldn't and wouldn't discuss it with her children. I was very reluctant to help, but the plans around the being buried. Yes, yes. Yeah. They were gobsmacked when. They learned that this was what she wanted, but they carried out her wishes. They were even more upset than they realised that I'd been a party to it. Were they not supportive of her either? Were they the executors? Were they working on their behalf? Or? No, the, the trustees of the estate funded the children. So the children tended to go with the trustees of the estate rather than with their mother. And she wanted her other child to be treated equally with the other three. And because they wouldn't allow it, this, this was... A source of the schism that went on from a roughly... Um, well, Kiko was born when she was 49 and from then until the end of her life, and she died at the, at the age of 80, uh, there was constant litigation over including Kiko which the, her daughter and her two sons, by Thomas, would not agree to. Well, she wanted for him was a fair share, a quarter. Equality, yeah, equality. Because she, as she looked upon it, um, it was her inheritance and how it was divided was for her to decide. They looked upon it that it was their inheritance, it was not for her to decide. Because they'd sort of been taken away from her earlier, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Have you... Uh, it's a horrible mess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and is it still a horrible mess, or...? I think so. It may, it continues to be that. There's pain there. Yeah. And, and nothing's been settled, or are they still fighting? Well, yes, there fighting, is. Or? There is in the sense that they... No doubt the present trustees, because the ones at that time are all dead, but they they sort of passed on the trusteeship as though it was their chattel. No? And really, it, it, it wasn't. So my sympathies are with Kathleen. Um, I think she's been badly treated. I think she was the mainstay of Thomas's creations, later creations from 1936 onward. I don't think he'd have pulled it off without her. That's my view.
Well, thanks for telling her side of the story. Okay, thank you. It's a great pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with George Tremlett, who is the author of Ketlin, Life with Dylan Thomas, published by Secker and Warburg back in 1986. Is it still in print? No, it's not. So how can people get a hold of this? They'll have to try it through Abe. You're not going to reprint it yourself? I can't, because I share the copyright equally with her Italian son, and he and I are non-communicado. Non okay. Okay. He can't publish without me, and I can't publish without him. Well, thanks again for sharing this uh, convoluted story. It's been <laughs> great. <laughs>